So, um, yeah, my name's Joe. You may, like Andrew said, have seen me jumping around like a bit of a lemon on the Ribbon Factory stage or in the Big Top, which is good fun. For I'm from South East London. Anyone from London here? Oh, it's quite nice. Usually there's lots of people. It's quite nice that there's lots of non-London folk. So I'm from South East London. Go to a church called King's Church, which is in a place called Lewisham. And so last year I graduated from studying theology at the University of Nottingham which was great, so um, someone from Nottingham, which is fantastic. So I, I did that, it was great. And just a quick aside, if you're, I assume if you're in this track, that might be of some interest to you. If you're thinking of maybe wanting to study theology or biblical studies or anything like that, I would love to chat with you. I've just done that and finished that. I'm often in the Ribbon Factory in the afternoons or straight after this seminar. I'd love just to chat with you about that and might be able to give you some advice. I actually met with Andrew a few years ago to speak to him about that. And he gave me some quite helpful advice. And so, yeah, if that's you, then I would love to chat to you at the end. So this morning, we're going to look at the question, is is God violent, uh, confused or both? Or is God angry, confused or both? Which is, is quite a difficult topic to look at, but I'm quite excited. And so I'm just going to quickly pray. And then we're going to read the passage that we're going to focus on this morning. So I'll pray and then we'll crack on. Yes, Lord, we do thank you just for New Day. We thank you for opportunities to come and just look at your word, to look at challenging texts that we might not usually get to in our own time. And we just pray that this morning that you would help us just to understand more about you. You would help us to understand your word. God, that you would speak truth into us. And we pray that you would just be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, right, a show of hands who has ever had a friend or even themselves, somebody questioned their faith or giving them a difficult question about, oh, what about all of the killing that goes on in the Old Testament? Or what about the horrible God in the Old Testament? Put your hand up. If you've had that, the majority of you, I had that quite a lot growing up in school, quite often my mates. I came back from a new day, actually, really pumped for Jesus. I was in year 11 and I started to get loads of stick. And that was often the thing that they would challenge me about and talk to me about. And that would be quite difficult. Because we know, don't we, that, you know, it's, it's quite challenging. God sets, you know, the Ten Commandments, thou shall not murder. It's quite a clear one. We probably learned that all in Sunday school or whatever. And then we get these passages where God seems to command people to murder hundreds of people all at once. And so it's a little bit confusing and challenging, to say the least. And so that's what we're going to try and wrestle with and look at today. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 15. If you don't have a Bible, it's not going to come on the screen. Shame on you. You should bring a Bible to New Day. If not, you can just listen. And I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 15. And I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. So from verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telayim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to Judah so Saul went to the city of Amalek, and he set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, 
Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Okay. If you've not read that before, you might know that that is quite a difficult passage to read. Was God just really angry? Why has he done that? Why has he commanded you know, Samuel to tell Saul to wipe out all of those people? And what I'm going to try and do this morning is... I'm going to try and list a few things. Okay, we're going to go for probably six points that I think will help you to try and get your head around this type of text. And the things that I'm probably going to talk to you about today, you'll probably be able to apply to other texts in the Old Testament where God does similar things. So another big one is when the Canaanites, when Joshua, they wipe out all of the Canaanites to go into the Promised Land. It's another one. And there's several passages where God seems to command this. And so the six things are just going to try and help you to maybe understand and get your head around this, how the God that we sing and worship and we talk about love and forgiveness in the big top is the same God that we read about here in the pages of the Bible. And so are you still going to have questions after this seminar about this sort of thing? Yes, you probably will. Am I going to be able to give you all of the answers and that you'll be an expert on, you know, Old Testament warfare? You know, no, probably not. But will you have a better understanding in how this fits in with how we understand God and how we can worship the God of the Bible? I hope so. That's what I hope that we're going to do today. So, point one. First things first. Okay? God is God. That might sound like quite an obvious one. Might quite sound like, oh, I could have told you that. God is God. When we come to this sort of question, questions that are really challenging and they make us really think, It tells us in Psalm 25, it says that he guides the humble in what is right and he teaches them his way. We have to approach this type of question humbly. We have to come very humbly to this type of question, knowing that actually God will reveal himself to us. I don't have all the answers. Andrew, as smart as he is, doesn't have all of the answers. Joel or Steph or any of the New Day team, they don't have all of the answers. We're not the fountain of all knowledge. That is God's title And so we need to understand that. And as we get into some of the more nitty-gritty of this passage, we need to understand and always remember that God is God and we are simply man. Okay, so we need to remember that. And something that I often hear about, so when I've spoken about this before or when I've had individual conversations with young people and adults before, something you often hear is, oh, but Joe, I couldn't believe in a God that would, you know, do what? is what you say. I wouldn't believe in a God that would do what? Do something that you or I wouldn't do? That's often we say, I couldn't believe in a God that would do that in the Old Testament. I couldn't believe in a God that would do this or this or this or this. And actually, in the book of Isaiah, what it says is, it says that God's ways, his ways are not like our ways. Okay, his ways aren't like our ways. And the way that God thinks, is says his thoughts are not like our thoughts. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth is how high God's thoughts and ways are above our ways and our thoughts. 
And so when we come and we question God in that sort of way, when we sort of say, you know, oh, I couldn't believe in a God that would do this, what we're actually implying, what we're suggesting is that we know better than God. That we can think about things in a more logical way than God. And I can think it more logically, that my sense of justice or my sense of what is right or what is correct or what is logical is actually better than God's sense of what is logical and what is right and what is just. And we sort of put ourselves on par with God in that level. Us, the created, created by God, put ourselves on par with him who created us. And so we just have to be very careful because we know we're told very early on in Genesis, I think there will be a talk on Genesis in this stream actually, but whatever God decides to do, even if we can't understand it, we know that it is just. It is just. It says in Deuteronomy 30, 32, all God's ways are justice. It's part of who he is. It's part of God's DNA. That's who he is. Part of him is justice. And so we know that he created the earth, yeah, it tells in Genesis, and all that is in it. And so we have to be careful that we don't try and say the one who created the earth and all that is in it doesn't know what is just or is right. And the ones who he created does. I thought of an analogy when I was thinking about this. My dad very recently, he owns his house and um, my mum and dad were basically redecorated and he's decided he wanted to rip up all of the carpet in the house, which was just a nightmare. And so we were sort of kicking off. But if my dad, who owns his house, decides to rip up all of the carpet and, you know, put lime green flooring down, he can do that. It's his house, everything in it is his, and he decides what goes on in that house. And that's quite a a silly analogy, and obviously we're talking about things that are a lot bigger than that, but it's that type of thing. The world is God's and everything in it, and he can do with it as he pleases. So we need to understand that just before we look at some of the more nitty-gritty and some of these topics. And just a quick comment on that. A guy called Justin Taylor, who writes for something... um, He's like an author in America. He's great. He says something about this, quite a helpful comment. He says that we shouldn't ask this question if God's ways are just. Okay, it's not saying, oh, God, are your ways just? Because we know that actually God is just because he is justice. But it's okay for us to ask, God, how are your ways just? And that is the, the great quest of theology. That is part of this stream. We come and we're not saying, oh, but, you know, are you just? We're saying, no, God, how, how does this all fit in? How does this all come together? And so we do, and I often do that. When I come to these sects, sometimes in the morning, I will pray, God, I know that you are just. I know that you are true. I know that you are great. I know that you are patient and kind. But, God, I can't figure this out. How, how does this all fit together? How does this, you know, will you help me understand how this fits together? And so that's the first point, okay? So now we're going to get into some more of the, the nitty-gritty, some of the stuff that will really help you understand this, bearing that first point in mind. Has anyone heard of the phrase holy warfare before? Okay, not many of you. So holy warfare is a term that is often spoken about when we try and explain these passages. Now often when we think of holy warfare, a lot of people think of actually modern-day terrorists who use that term. You know, they say that they're doing... God's work. That's not what I'm talking about here. Holy war, okay, is where God himself is the main combatant in the war, okay? In the Old Testament, there is war, and what it is, is the people are committed to Yahweh, yeah, the God of Israel, and that he is the center of that war. And I just want to make three comments for you on holy war, okay? 
When there's war in the Bible where God commands it, it's called holy warfare. And it is divinely declared by God. Holy warfare is divinely declared by God. What it usually happens is he commands by some revelation to an anointed leader. So in verse 3, he commands to Samuel to tell Saul, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. So it's usually for a prophet. And it's often it is declared by God out of his desire for justice. It's the, his desire for justice and his anger at injustice is often when God steps in and declares warfare. I tried to declare warfare once. I actually, when I learned about this for the first time, I was at school actually, and uh, probably not the best thing to share, but when I was in year 10, I basically was one of the guys in my school. We organized like a, basically a, it was like a big group fight against another school. I don't know if that still happens, but we basically organized a big group fight against this other school because there was all stuff going on. And I found myself in the head teacher's office. And I was a Christian at this point, which is even more shameful. I shouldn't even share it. But I basically said, oh, I tried to tell the teacher that I was, it was holy warfare. And uh, that basically these guys were causing lots of injustice. And I was just trying to bring justice for me and my friends. And uh, I still got excluded. It didn't really work. Um, so I don't recommend that you try that one with your parents or your teacher. They usually laugh at you. But, um, so this example here is where God declares warfare, okay? He's commanding Saul to do it as an act of justice. You need to understand this about what God is commanding Saul to do here and the reason that he commands him in a certain way. It's not an act of imperialism. It's not an act of, he doesn't want Israel to extend their empire. He's not saying, oh, go and attack the Amicalites so that your empire grows and that you become greater and that you have more wealth and more money. That's not what he's doing, okay? He's not trying to increase their kingdom. But it's simply the question is, how can you deal with a group of people that are continually doing wrong, continually sinning against your people, continually going against God? How can you deal with them? And one of the ways that we see quite often in the Old Testament is sometimes force is required. And God uses force to deal with that. And so he uses Israel quite often in that sense. And I'll talk a little bit about this later. But I want you to notice something in the command that God gives to Saul. Okay? I'm going to read it again. The second half, he says, Now go attack the Amicalites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. I wonder when I read that, why does God seem to go so much on the details of destroying everything that they own? All that belongs to them, their cattle and their sheep, their livelihood, basically. In that context, their cattle and their sheep and their donkeys, that was like their livelihood. Why does God command that? Is he just being, do you know what I mean? Is he just being a bit extra? Is he just being a bit nasty? Is it really necessary? And actually, the question is no. The reason that God does that, okay, is because he's saying this. I want you to use force but not in the way that the Amicalites or other nations would use force. Because often when an army goes to war, even in our day, one of the reasons they go to war, and especially in the Old Testament, was because they wanted to acquire wealth. They wanted to take possession of their land. They wanted to take possession of their gold and their livestock. They wanted to increase their kingdom and their dominance and their empire. And so God is saying to Saul, here, no, no, that's not why I want you to go to war. I don't want you to have one penny of profit. 
I don't want you to have anything. It's not about you extending your kingdom or Israel becoming more powerful or great. It's not about you gaining stuff. It's simply a terrible act of justice on the Amicalites for what they have been doing, for the way that they live. That's all it is. It's not about profit. And in modern day, when nations go to war, they often talk about, you know, we're doing this for justice. But quite often, more times than not, it's about wealth and it's about power. And later on in this chapter, I've not read the verse, but God gets very angry at Saul. When he realizes that Saul didn't actually kill everything, but he kept some of the best stuff. That's what he says. He says the things that were great, he kept. God gets, God's fuming at Saul. He said, no, no, that's not what I wanted. This was an act of justice. It wasn't an act for you to gain something. It wasn't for you to gain profit. That's not why God wanted them to go to war. And so that's holy warfare. Now, what I think will be helpful now is I made some comments on the Amicalites. Has anyone heard of the Amicalites before? A few people. The Amicalites, okay? This is point three. Now, the Amicalites, you need to understand, as a people, yeah, as a group of people, they were violent, they were aggressive, they were, quite often, they were, they were bandits and thieves and criminals, a lot of them. And they was like this for many, many years. And for many years, as a group of people, they rebelled against God. They went completely against God's will. And the destruction of the Amicalites was something that was promised years ago. Who remembers the story of uh, Moses when Joshua is at battle and Moses needs to, basically, he has his hands in the air. And when his hands are in the air, the Israelites are winning. And then as soon as his hands are put down, then the Israelites start to lose. And so two people come and they hold up. Moses' hands. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. We used to tell that one when we was younger. And in that story, at the end of it, Moses, he says, you know, I will make a banner for my hands were lifted high up to the throne of God and the Lord will be, against, will be at war against the Amicalites from generation to generation. So that's what he says at the end of that passage. And so it's promised in the Old Testament time and time again. In Deuteronomy 25, it says that the Amicalites... Basically, they wiped out a whole load of Israelites when they left Egypt. Okay? They wiped out God's people. Time and time again, they were at war with God's people. They were at war with God. They refused to fear Him. They persistently refused to acknowledge God, to to follow Him, and they continually made war against God's people. And so what they did is they sowed seeds of destruction into themselves. I thought a school analogy might be quite helpful. If you're at school, okay, it probably makes me sound like I'm really bad. At school, a lot of my friends, what we did is we sowed seeds of destruction into ourselves. You know, we continually refused to do what we were told. We continually answered back. We continually didn't do things that we were supposed to do. And you keep on doing them things until eventually you sow seeds of your own destruction and your time is up. I had friends at school that would continually do that. They would keep doing wrong and wrong and wrong. And eventually, they would call into the head teacher's office with their parents. And the head teacher would say, your, your time is up. You're leaving. They would be expelled from the school. Because time and time again, they refused to follow the rules. They refused to acknowledge the school system. And there's something similar with the Amicalites in this story. Time and time again, they refused to follow God. They refused to fear him. They refused to follow him. And they sowed seeds of destruction into themselves. And we read it in this passage. One thing that you need to know about God is that he is very slow to anger. Okay, God is slow to anger and he's abounding in love. 
but he does not let the guilty go unpunished. It says in Exodus 34, he does not let the guilty go unpunished. And so the Amicalites, they had a history of clashing with Israel and God's people. And by the time that Saul, in this passage, was in power, the time, their time was up. Their chances were gone. It's like, no, you've been refusing to follow God for so long. You've been clashing against God for so long. You've been going against God for so long that actually your time is up. And when you read these stories in the Old Testament about people being wiped out, you'll notice that the people that are, you know, that God kills you are people that have continually done wrong, have continually gone against God, have continually refused to acknowledge him or to fear him. And that's true of the Amicalites. They refused to do that. And so there's a message in this story, okay? Because then, and just the same as now, God wanted us to know, okay, that sin is deadly serious. He wanted the Amicalites, he wanted Israel to know that. That sin, refusing to follow God, is deadly serious. We get lots of these stories in the Old Testament, and I think we're supposed to be shocked by them. We're supposed to be like, wow. They're harsh and painful, and honest reality is that this is a picture of a greater judgment day that is to come. It's a picture of a greater day, a judgment day that is to come that will happen to the whole world. People that have continually sowed seeds of their own destruction by refusing to acknowledge God. By continuing to go their own way and do their own thing and block him out. In the same way that he wiped these people out, there will be a day when God comes and judges again. Phil Moore, who leads Everyday Church in Wimbledon, you may have heard of that church. He talks about this, some of these passages, and he says that people that refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Savior, people that refuse in their lifetime to acknowledge Jesus as Savior, will eventually face God as judge. And that was true for the Amicalites in this story. They refused persistently to acknowledge God, and so they found him as judge. So that's point three, okay? So you look at holy warfare and the Amicalites. And now I just want to point out some historical and some you know, literacy considerations for you, some things about the context of the time and some things that you probably need to understand. Okay, I find this one quite funny. Historical scholars, okay, they make some good comments on this, and they talk about the language that we get in the Old Testament, okay? You often hear words like destroyed, annihilated, you know, completely wiped out. You hear these words, and they're quite stark, and they're quite challenging. But what we know is that Near Eastern war texts, okay, just like the Bible, they like to exaggerate. They simply, they like to exaggerate. And so what we hear is we talk about a king might say, you know, me and we wiped out every single person in that land. Every inhabitant of that land was wiped out. And then he says, and then like in the next line, in near ancient war text, he'll say, and so all of the people left in that land will acknowledge me as king. So if you wiped them all out, how can the rest of you acknowledge him as king? Quite often they didn't mean that they completely wiped them out. What it meant is that they just had a complete and total victory. So we had a complete and total victory. They are completely finished. We won the war comfortably they were all annihilated that's what often happens and this happens in the bible as well to be honest with the weapons and stuff that they had in that time and the technology i don't think a total annihilation of a whole people group would have been very difficult 
They didn't have a nuclear bomb. They couldn't just drop a bomb and wipe out everyone. It's spears and swords. It would have been very difficult to wipe out an entire nation as they say they did. And so when you're reading passages in the Old Testament, including this one, and it reads that God wiped out a whole nation, okay, or, you know, all the destruction of a whole nation, it isn't always the case. And what it can actually mean is it can actually mean that it was just a complete and total victory. God wanted a complete and total victory. Sometimes it was just the armies that were wiped out. Sometimes it was just those that were continually sinning that were wiped out. And it could well be that in this passage as well. And the reason that we have to know that is because, for example, this passage, the whole Amicalite army we told are wiped out. But if you keep reading 1 Samuel, okay, when you get to chapters 28 and 29, you'll read about the Amicalite army again. This time David and they go up against the Amicalite army again. And so they quite obviously weren't all wiped out altogether because we read about them at other times in the Old Testament as well. In 2 Samuel, you'll read about the Amicalites again. Now, if every single one of them was wiped out, you know, it, it wouldn't be the case. And so quite often that language, it doesn't always literally mean exactly what it means. Okay? Sometimes it's, it's just like, it's quite simple. It's like, no, I want complete victory. I want you to really shut them down. I want justice. I want them finished. It doesn't mean that every single person was completely and utterly killed. Okay? And also another thing to consider is that society at that time, there was no police force. Okay, there wasn't an ambulance. There wasn't like, you know, an embassy or any sort of, you know, system that we would deal with injustice. There wasn't, you know, security or universal law as such. At times, okay, force was the only way to deal with injustice. The most appropriate way to deal with injustice. Nations would often wage war with one another... And things would get intense. And sometimes that is the case today, isn't it? Sometimes that's the only way, you know, force can be very appropriate sometimes. When we see, even in our world today, we're like, man, the only way to deal with that people actually is by using force. And so there's a couple of comments that you just need to grasp about, you know, the time. And when you're actually reading the text, when it says, are oh, they wiped out all of these people, you just have to stop and think, okay, is there anything else in this Bible that says that they weren't all wiped out? Do they appear again? You know, is it just that type of language is being used? Okay? So that's the first four points. A quick recap. God is God. Okay? God is God. He can do as he pleases. We have to humbly approach him. Holy warfare. Okay, when God declares war against injustice, we call it holy warfare. And often he speaks that through a prophet or through his anointed leader. And he declares war on a nation to deal with injustice. So second, the Amicalite people. We looked at the Amicalites and how they deserved, actually, what they got. And then we've also got these literacy considerations, okay, about the way that the text is written. Now, the final two points I'm going to spend the rest of the time, obviously, speaking about. So we've got those four. The fifth one, I think, is quite important. And it's basically righteous and just anger. Righteous and just anger. Just some more comments on justice. You would have heard me speak about that a lot this morning. All of us, okay, deserve God's justice. If you go and read Romans 3, or Romans 3 right through to Romans 8 or 9, you'll read that all of us, we deserve God's justice. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, and the punishment for that is death. 
Okay, all of us, you and I, we've tried to go and do our own thing at times. You know, we've wandered off in our own way. We've tried to do our things. And actually, what we deserve, what would be just, would be for us to die. That's the only justice that you or me deserve. It's the only justice that the Amicalites and actually the people of Israel deserved, is to die. We've rebelled against God. If God wiped all of us out now, God decided we'd all be wiped out. He would be just in doing so. When he wiped out all of the people in Noah's time, other than, you know, Noah and Ark, he was just. When he killed all of the Egyptians, you know, with the plague and then in the Red Sea, he was just in doing that. And when he wipes out the Amicalites, he is just in doing that. What we get in this passage and what you'll see in other passages is God demonstrating his holy and righteous anger. God demonstrates his holy and righteous anger. When we think about anger, we often think of quite negative connotations with that. I often did growing up. But anger is a strange one, isn't it? For me, anger is an emotion that usually is the first indicator that you care about something. When you get angry, if someone says something, you get angry, it's like the first indicator that you, that, that you care about something, your emotion involved, it, it rolls you up, you start to get sweaty palms and you get angry and you get cross. And quite often, actually, I would say that we don't get angry enough when it comes to injustice. God quite often gets, and when we see injustice, it's often anger that moves us to try and do something about it. That's like the first emotion. You know, like Martin Luther King, he used to get angry at the injustice that he saw and it moved him to, to want to do something about it. It was like a righteous anger. It wasn't a, a wrong anger. It was okay for him to do that. People, the famous example people talk about is Jesus in the temple. When they're selling stuff in the temple, when he gets angry and he goes out and he drives them out of the temple with righteous anger. God is slow to anger, but when he does get angry, okay, it's not just about him wanting to be angry. It's about his compassion and his desire and concern for his people and for justice. Now, this idea of, you know, righteous anger and God coming out and using force is quite a hard one for us to understand. Joel actually mentioned something about Aslan in the big top. And as he mentioned that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what, it's like an example we get in here. Hands up if you've seen Narnia. Hands up if you've read the books. Shame on you, put your hands down. But uh, read the books, they're even better than the films. People always say that, but it is true. But in the story of Narnia, don't we, we see glimpses of Aslan as this kind, gentle, compassionate lion, quite cuddly. You know, they go through walks in the woods and all those things. It's very nice. But we see glimpses of him being righteously angry and cross. My favourite scene in that film, actually, is when they're in a tent, Aslan and the, the White Witch, and he comes out and they've made an agreement, they've made their deal and she says, oh, how would I know that you know, you'll honour the agreement? And he just does that massive roar. And then she just sits down and they all start laughing. I love that bit in the film. But what you'll notice about Aslan is there comes a time, okay, with Aslan. We know that as great as he is, he isn't one to be trifled with. Okay? He isn't one to be trifled with and he can turn aggressive and quite scary. And he knows in the end when it comes to... I'm going to talk louder because... Daryl's shouting over there, and so I want to make sure you hear me. What Aslan knows is that actually the only way for him to deal with the White Witch and to bring justice to Narnia is to use force. 
And so they get the arm out and they go and he goes and he's in battle himself. He is in that. It's like Aslan declares that warfare. He's in it himself fighting for the people of Narnia. And that's like an image we get here. Because like, no, I've got to bring justice. The only way to do that is for me to bring force. And so he does that. That's what he does. And the reason that God commands war is for that very reason. It's for that very reason. And God... At times in the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, time and time again, you'll hear that he very potently tells Israel that if they don't follow the Lord, if they don't follow his law, then actually they will suffer the same fate as the Amicalites and the other people that choose to not follow him. God, in the Old Testament, he gives his special electing love to the people of Israel. He takes them and they become his people. But his threats and promise of punishment to them if they are unfaithful to him shows his fairness and his commitment to justice. And so God is angry at the Amicalites for the injustice that they cause. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to step in. And it's okay for him to do that. Because actually, he has the right to be angry and it is correct for him to be angry at what is going on. So that's some comments on righteous anger. Which brings me to my final point, which is good because I think I'm running out of time. The final point, the sixth point that I'm going to make, is probably the most important thing that we're going to talk about this morning, and that is Jesus. Okay? Jesus often says in an occasion in the Old Testament, you would have heard it before, you know, don't you realize that the Old Testament, it points to me. You search the scriptures for the Messiah, it points to me. And people often talk about whatever question you might have whenever you're reading the Old Testament, quite often Jesus will, be, will always, Jesus will be involved in the solution. It all points to him, actually. All of these questions that we have, it will all point to him. And I want to explain in this story, okay, how we can understand that. God in this story is angry. I've told you that. Is God violent? Is God angry? Yes. God is angry. Is he confused? No, he isn't confused. He knows exactly what he was doing, but he is angry, okay? He knows what he is doing. He hates sin. He still does. He hates sin. He hates the wrongdoing. He hates the injustice that the Amicalites are doing, and he's angry at that, and he's angry at those that commit it, and the Amicalites, and often, you know, in other passages, the Canaanites and the Amorites and other people that end in ites. Time and time again, God wipes them out because they are doing wrong. But unlike the Old Testament, okay, that we read this morning, where God would pour out his anger, unlike that, we learn about Jesus that he made another way. 2,000 years ago, instead of pouring out his anger, he sent his only son. So he did. He sent his begotten son, his only son, his precious son, Jesus, who came and lived on the earth. He made his home amongst us and he lived. And in the moment on the cross, as Jesus was on the cross, what God does is he pours out all of his anger and his wrath and his frustration. He pours that on his only son when he slaughtered on the cross in that moment. That's what happens. And so all of the sin of humanity, all of the wrongdoings that we've done, all of us turning away, instead of actually putting his anger on us, the way that would often happen in the Old Testament, actually 
That's no longer happening because of Jesus. All of the sin of humanity from beginning to end, my sin, your sin, sin that we've done, sin that is yet to come, sin that we will do today and the next day, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He brought justice. Because of what Jesus did, God doesn't need to bring justice because he paid the price for us. So that actually when we come and we stand before God, which we will do, he isn't going to see our sin or the injustice that we've caused, but he will see Jesus. But those who have refused, those who have refused to acknowledge Jesus, those who have refused to acknowledge God, will have to face him as judge. Somebody had to die. Okay, Somebody had to have the punishment. The Amicalites were punished. Somebody had to be punished for what we did wrong, for our own sin. And instead of punishing us, he chose to punish his son. And so we now have an opportunity to know God as saviour. And I will finish by saying this, that there will be a day when Jesus will come again and each of us will stand before God and he will judge humanity. And those who know Jesus and know God as saviour he will welcome us in. But those who have continually refused to sow siege of destruction into themselves will face God as judge. And they will face the same fate as the Amicalites. And that's hard and it's challenging. But that's the reality of what we get in Scripture and actually what we can see in this passage. So I'm going to pray. And then I think what we do with the rest of the time is we're going to open it up. If there's any questions, I'm sure that if I can't answer them, I'm sure Andrew can come and give me a hand. But um, what we do is I'm going to pray. And then if you've got any questions, I'll be happy to stick around. We've still got 25 minutes or so to answer any of your questions. Yes, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive to us, that it is truth. And we thank you that we have an opportunity to know you as Savior. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent your son, your only son, to take the price that we should have paid, that actually we can stand before you. We thank you for that, and we pray, God, that you'll continue to help us to understand these passages, continue to help us to come to know you more through these, and continue to help us know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, great. Is there any questions? From what I've said, if you do, I'll be happy to answer them. You might just have to shout them out or like pass them along. We'll go down here. This is nice and easy. What's your question? So the question is, why does God never punish people himself? And why does he choose to get Israel to do it? Okay. So God could quite easily of... So in this story, for example, God could have probably quite easily done that himself. You're right. I think part of it in this story... Because when you read about the character of Saul, is you realise that what God was actually doing was he, was he was testing Saul at the same time. So Saul was his anointed king, and Saul doesn't really do what God wanted him to do in this story. And after that, God rejects him as king. And so in the same way that we can ask the question, why does God, you know, use, like, why do we get used to do anything? That God likes to use us. God likes to work through us. And so these people of Israel, we quite often would call them to do things to check their obedience, to see if they would be obedient to him, if they would follow his call. And also, I think he was testing some of Saul's character in this story. And Saul actually falls up, comes up short. 
And so he's saying, you know, do what I command you to do. And Saul actually doesn't do that. And so at the end, God, you know, talks to Samuel and he says, no, no, you know what? I regret even anointing him as king. He shouldn't be the king of Israel. And so we see this whole thing unfold. And so God often, even in your life, will maybe command you to do certain things. I'll go and speak to that person. Or he doesn't need you to do that. But sometimes it's like he gets us to do those things to test our own obedience. To see, you know, are we going to do that, test our own character? And so I think that's part of the reason why actually he, you know, commands Israel, go and do this act of justice for me. Does that answer your question? Okay, great. Other questions? So why does God call for the destruction of children when they haven't actually done anything wrong? It's a good question. So I said in that passage that, because you can even argue as well that, you know, the men, women, and children, in that time, God, the Amicalites as a group of people, God was concerned with them as a group of people and the way that they were inherently wrong and continually corrupt to do wrong things. And so he's just stepping in and saying, you know what? Enough is enough. We say the same where in, in the story of Noah, someone asked me the same thing. Oh, God must have wiped out so many children and all of those people as well. And so it's one of those things where we come, the points that we made, like the six points that I made, will unfortunately apply to children as well. They would apply to those children as well. And I would actually have a question whether God did wipe out all of the children. Again, I would have a question if they were all wiped out because we hear of the Amicalites again and again, you know, as time goes on. And so those children probably would have grown up and they would have been the Amicalites that we read about. And so I don't actually think in this story that every single ch- all of the children were killed. I think it's more just this thing of that I want you to wipe out everything, including all of the livestock. And, like, I want a complete, total act of justice. I don't actually think that they went round and they killed every single child. If they did, we never would have read about the Amicalites again. But we continually read about them again and again and again. And so actually, I don't think they were all wiped out. I think it's just more what God is trying to represent and what he wants. That This isn't about you. Quite often, what they would do in that time is when you went and had a, a, in warfare, they would take the women and children to be slaves. And they would take them on and they would be slaves and they would then own them. And so he said, no, it's not about that. It's not about you taking on the women and the children. I don't want you to gain anything out of this. I don't want you to gain slaves or servants or money. I just want justice. Okay, let's go. This guy here. So the question is, do I believe that God would, you know, command holy war now in light of Jesus? This is a good question. I don't believe that God would, you know, so in the same way that God commanded Samuel or other prophets in time to wipe out a whole nation, no, I don't think that, that God would do that. I don't think he would do that. I think sometimes there is nations who go to war in this day and it is for, just, you know, when there was people being persecuted in other nations and nations step in, you know, it is an act of justice, but I don't think that God would speak to an individual and say, you need to go and wipe out all of those people in my name. I don't think that in light of Jesus, that, no, that would, that would happen. Yeah? So the question is, if people have free will, is God not a dictator in the sense if it's follow me or die? So, you know, if you don't follow God and fear God, then you will be wiped out. Okay? So you'll notice that God doesn't wipe out every single inhabitant in the planet other than the people of Israel in the Old Testament. It's not, you know, it's not like you have the people of Israel and then nobody else. But the problem with the Amicalites is they continually, it's not that they just refused to acknowledge God, they continually attacked these people, and they didn't just not acknowledge God, but they used to, they were, they were horrible, violent people. And so they would attack God's people, the people of Israel, time and time again. And so there was a, a difference with them, and you'll often notice that the nations that God does then bring justice on are the ones that continually attack his people, 
and they continually cause injustice to Israel. And so he declares war on them more than just anyone who doesn't follow God is going to die. But they do get, you know, there's many, many options for them to come and know him. But yeah, it's not like you have the people of Israel and no one else is alive and then they all eventually die because they don't. But their time does come when eventually, you know, sometimes because of a particular thing they've done or time and time again, God says, actually, you know, I want justice on that nation. Does that answer your question? Great. Okay. Young lady here. So the question is, why, if the Amicalites weren't God's people, then why was he punishing them when they actually they don't know that they was committing injustice? Maybe if they, you know, if they weren't God's chosen people like Israel, then is it a little bit harsh to, you know, suggest that oh, we're going to kill you for your injustice? Is that, yeah, sums up your question? So the Am- it's actually a good question. The Amicalites weren't the people of God. You know, Israel were God's chosen people. And it wasn't a case if they didn't know in terms of, oh, how did they know what they were doing was, was unjust? You know, they were continually attacking God's people and killing many and acting in a very violent, aggressive way. You know, they were, they were, that's obviously unjust to all of the people. They would have known that they were acting in a way that was unjust. And I guess that time and time again, we, you know, we don't read it in this story, but we assume that God actually, you know, they refused to acknowledge and fear God. They would have had warnings, you know, in the same way that the Egyptians, Moses continually, you know, warns Pharaoh, and they ignore it eventually. So the Amicalites would have been warned, they would have been told time and time again, yet they continually attack Israel and continually do those things. Yeah, does that? Yeah? Great. Okay, other questions? So, so the question is, it's like, if God declares it, do you then have a pass? And, you know, once the war's finished, do you then have to go back to not being able to kill anybody because the commandment is, you know, thou shalt not murder, okay? So the commandment is, thou shalt not murder. I guess the point in this story is what they are doing, God, God has commanded them to do that. And so God put it in God's eyes, it wouldn't be actually murder. I, don't, I think, you know, God has commanded them to kill them out. And so it's not, it's not murder, it's not the shedding of innocent blood, it's not going and killing someone that you shouldn't have done. It's, they're following God's instructions and they're wiping out people that deserve that justice. And so I think there's a difference between killing in God's command in the holy warfare than there is between just murdering someone. But I, think, I think that's more what the commandment means, you know, you shall not murder. So I mean, there's a, there's a difference between the two. And I think if they did just go around killing people, then yeah, obviously, you know, that is one of the Ten Commandments. But often it's during warfare is that no 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 what they were doing wouldn't have been God wouldn't have then judged them oh you know I'm going to command you to kill someone and once they've done it oh no you bad people you've been killing people I'm now going to judge you you know it would be a bit out of order really if he'd done that so um, yeah okay we've probably got time for a couple more questions I feel like there's some people at the back that probably don't often get picked so you in the check shirt yeah you have to either come forward or shout really loud you're going to come forward Great. Okay, so he's saying, what does God have to do, basically, to make himself, uh, to make himself being unjust? Yeah, what's God got to do, essentially, to make himself be unjust? You know, commands kidnapping and killing time and time again. And so I would, I would make that comment to what I said at the start, that actually... God, time and time again, does those things. The fact that we're not all wiped out altogether shows that God is just. You know, actually, what we deserve, what the Amicalites and Israelites, what we all deserve is to all be wiped out. Actually, it's God's mercy and grace that he chose to not do that. So in the same way with Noah, he could have wiped out everyone, but he chose. And you know what, Noah, a righteous man. 
And so it's not a case of, oh, you know, what more has he got to do? It's that actually he is being just in doing that, no matter what he does. And so that's, I think, the first point that I was trying to make, is that actually the earth is God's and everything in it, he created all things, and he has the right to do with it as he pleases. And so we have to, and so when we, the way that we understand that sometimes is like, rather than saying, well, but that doesn't seem like it's very just to me, it doesn't seem like it, it makes sense to me, therefore it cannot be correct. In the same way, so actually, no, his ways are not like our ways, his faults are not like our faults. Actually, it's, it's our sense of justice that is flawed and not right, and it's his that is okay, and all that he does is just. And actually, the Amicalites, as well as all of the other people, they continually sinned against God, and so it was justice for them to be killed. Is that... Okay, one more question. To be perfectly honest with you, I can't... I don't know. In the sense of, like, I don't think anyone can fully say, oh, you know, it was at this time that God decided, okay, enough was enough. Now, you know, Jesus was always going to come. You know, before, it wasn't like... Some people like to think that sometimes we look at the... You know, Jesus coming is us. So God created the world. No, other than Adam sinned. Okay, so what I'll do is, you know, I'll send the prophets. Oh, no, that didn't work. Okay, I'll send the judges to judge them. Oh, no, that didn't work. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll send Jesus. Like a plan B almost. That's not how it works. It wasn't like God was like, oh, yeah, no. Okay, this didn't work. This didn't work. But I'll send Jesus and that'll make up for it. That, you know, the incarnation wasn't a plan B. Okay, before the world was created, Jesus was always going to come. And so I don't know exactly why he chose to come in, you know, 0 BC or why he didn't choose to send him 500 years earlier. But again, it's just trusting that actually God knew what he's doing at that time, at that place. It was the right time to come. You know, you have to trust that he knew when was coming. The one who created the world knew that it was the perfect time for him to come at that time. And I can't tell you, oh, you know, he did it exactly for this reason. But we know that actually Jesus knows it was the right time for him to come. And so he came at that time.